Hello, and welcome to the Women Who Code podcast. This show features conversations between diverse technology professionals discussing women in the industry, cutting-edge innovations, the future of work, deeply technical topics, and the ways that we can all work together to make the world a more inclusive place. We hope you enjoy, and if you do, please subscribe, rate, and comment. It's time for Women Who Code Conversations, a segment to hear from top technology professionals sitting down with a Women Who Code member to discuss real-world experiences in the industry, what they've learned over the course of their career, and what they think is coming next for tech. Today on Women Who Code Conversations, we'll be hearing from Taisha Smith, Chief Administrative Officer at Marsh McLennan. She'll be talking about consensus-based management styles, diversity in the tech industry, overcoming professional hardships, and her vision for the future. Enjoy. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Women Who Code podcast. I'm Sonakshi Pandey, and I lead the cloud track at Women Who Code. Our guest today is Taisha Smith. Taisha has over 20 years of experience across information technology and financial industries. Currently, she is serving as the Chief Administration Officer at Marsh McLennan Global Technology Infrastructure. In her role, uh, she's responsible for ensuring IT organizations meet its strategic goals. She has an MBA in High Technology Management from Northeastern University and a BS in Business from Devra University. While holding ITIL, Six Sigma, Applied Project Management and Executive Management Certifications. She serves as an advisory board member for the Customer Experience Program at University of California. Now, let's talk more more, uh, with Taisha and get to know her career journey and let's learn what's her mantra for success. So hi Taisha, how are you doing today? Hi Sanakshi, I'm doing pretty well, how about you? I, I'm doing very well as well and uh, thank you so much for taking the time today to interview with me. Um, so we would like to know about your career journey, so can you tell us more about it? Sure. Um, my career has been, I think, a series of happy accidents. I did not know, um, I didn't know what I wanted in my career when I first started. I didn't know what I wanted to do. When I started college, um, my initial uh, major was computer information systems. But as I started taking the courses, I found that, you know, programming um, came easy to me, but it just wasn't something that I was interested in. I realized kind of early on that I wanted a role that would enable me to leverage my creativity, as well as have a lot more engagement with customers, clients, you know, uh, and colleagues. So I switched my major to business with a concentration in marketing, and somehow I still ended up in tech. (laughs) So when I started my career after college, I started in support. So I worked at a help desk and I supported an application that was used by insurance agents. Um, I had learned that 
application so well that when an opportunity came up on the QA team that tested that application, they tapped me for it and I accepted. And I think this was the first of many roles that I accepted in my career where I didn't have direct experience, but I was able to leverage transferable skills and skills that I had learned from other roles to be successful. I, done, I had done that for you know, um, a few years. QA testing came natural to me because I am analytical. I am, you know, always curious. I'm always playing around and tinkering. So it came very easy to me, although I, I never saw myself um, being a tester, right? It wasn't a, it wasn't a discipline that I even knew existed. Um, but after a few years, I moved on to another role. I became a business analyst. Once again, another role that I didn't have direct experience in, but I was able to leverage previous experience to be successful in that role. So in the role of a business analyst, I went from testing to being the person that worked with the sponsors and interpreted um, their requirements into something that I could then deliver to developers so that they could develop um, you know, either a new product or enhancements to an existing product. Um, I also in that role managed the testers. So that was a completely different role for me. It flexed a different muscle for me. It's, it started to give me um, that piece that I was looking for, which was, you know, that stakeholder engagement, working more with colleagues and clients and, and, and really talking them through scenarios, et cetera. So I really enjoyed that role. Um, but then I moved on from that company and I started with the company that I'm with today. And I took a step back just to get my foot in the door at this company, right? So I started back in support again, um, but it was a very different role. When I was in support the first time, it was a specific application. In, in, in the role that I took, it was several applications. They were all proprietary applications, but it was a lot more of a technical role. Um, and, and I was doing things that I had not done before. Um, but it was it was good. It was exciting because it was it was all new for me. And, and I love that. I love being in a position where I don't know what's going on and I have to figure it out. Um, and you'll notice that as a theme as I go through the rest of my career, because pretty much every role that I've taken has been something that I did not do before. Um, after a while, I think about two years of being in that role, I became a manager of that team, but then we went through a reorg, right? So we, we became more of a shared services organization for IT. So all of the IT teams kind of moved under one organization and everyone was sort of scared at this time. Um, but for me, I was a little bit excited because for me, it represented opportunity. And I took advantage of that opportunity and took the opportunity to ask for something that I wanted. At that time, I had started learning ITIL. So I had just gotten my ITIL certification um, and I had an interest in change management, infrastructure change management. Once again, something completely different. My entire career had been on the software side of things. Now I was moving into infrastructure, which is completely different. And I was moving into process management, 
also completely different. Um, so, you know, I asked to be on this team, even though I didn't have any relevant experience, um, but, but someone, you know, thought enough of me to say, you know what, I'm going to give you a shot go ahead, you can go and be on the change management team. And I was on the change management team and about a year in, I was promoted um, to the global lead of that team. Um, and in that role, I was responsible for defining what that process was, getting that process accepted by all of the business stakeholders, you know, defining requirements for the tool set that we use that would support that process, you know, defining our reporting, all of that was my responsibility in managing the team of change managers across the globe. I really enjoyed that role for a long time. Um, and I think I, I did that role for about maybe eight or nine years. Um, I was in that role and I really, I really enjoyed it. Um, it. It was something that stretched me in a lot of ways because I was so insecure going into that role because I did not have that infrastructure experience, I didn't have that process experience, but something in me just knew that I could do it. Um, around the time when I started to finish up my MBA, I started thinking about, you know, well, I need to, I need to take on a different role. I need to start using what I'm learning in grad school. I wanted to manage a bigger team. I wanted to get more involved in the budget. I wanted to do more strategy. So at that time, I took a different role and it was completely different. Once again, um, I was responsible for service delivery in user support, right? So I was managing desktop support for all of our offices on the West Coast, completely different for me because I had never done desktop support. I had done support before, but not desktop support. So I had to go back and learn, you know, how a computer works, right? You know, um, all of the different components of a PC, you know, learning all of the jargon, you know, meeting with the business leaders, understanding what their needs are. In this role, it allowed me to use a lot more of my creativity. Um, because you had to find ways to engage the business, right? You had to find ways to solve some of their problems because at the end of the day, my role was to make sure that they were able to do their job and, you know, service their clients, right? Very important job. So it was very important for me to be on top of everything in terms of service delivery. And I needed to find ways to better engage with the business and, and, and deliver better service to them. That role um, was actually really, really pivotal in my career because it prepared me for the role that I'm in now, right? Where I'm, I'm in a non-technical role. So in my role now, I'm managing the operations for the IT organization. And, you know, once again, it was a role that I didn't have direct experience in, but every role that I had taken in the organization prepared me for this role because I have a good understanding of how the entire organization works because I've taken different roles and different functions um, throughout my career. And not only that, I've done a lot of process management. I've done, you know, stakeholder management all through my other roles. Where I am now is, is it, it just, 
everything that I had done previously built up to where I am now. So that is kind of my journey in a nutshell. And you, as you've heard, everything that I've done has been something that I wasn't completely confident that I could do, but somehow I was able to do it. So Daisha, that is super inspiring. And I think your journey um, will definitely inspire everyone listening to it to first of all, you know, not be afraid of change, embrace change as, as it comes, because this is how, you know, we've learned that how change can be important in helping you grow in your career. Um, so thanks, thank you for sharing your career journey with us. Um, we would also like to know how Marsh McLennan has been supportive of your career ambitions. Um, Marsh McLennan has been very supportive of my career ambitions. ambitions. Um, first and foremost, when looking at a company that you want to join, you need to take a look at the benefits that they offer, right? Um, and one of the things that was very attractive to me um, about Marsha McLennan was the benefits that they offered. I have been able to, you know, obtain several certifications. I have been able to complete an MBA all debt-free. And that is because I have been able to leverage the, biz the, the benefits that Marsha McLennan offers. On top of that, I've had a number of mentors um, and sponsors, both formal and informal, that have you know, aided in my development, have spoke my name in rooms that I wasn't in and vouched for me to have certain opportunities. I've also worked under managers and management teams that created a culture um, that I felt enabled me to be open about my career aspirations. That's not always the case, right? Sometimes you feel like, if I say what I really want to do and it's not this, you know, would I get fired or, you know, would, would they prevent me from taking certain opportunities um, or, or working on certain projects because they know ultimately I want to move and, and, and do another role? That wasn't the case here. Um, not only were my managers, you know, very supportive and my management teams have been very supportive of what I wanted to do in my career. They've taken steps to, to get me where I wanted to go in my career. So I've been very appreciative of that. And then further, the sheer breadth of this company has enabled me to take on several different positions, live in several different states, um, you know, I can't speak enough about how Marsha McLennan has aided in my career ambitions. Uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of times we find companies that gives us perks, but a lot of times we are also afraid to ask for those perks or like approach the company, tell them what you want, right? So that, that is, you bring up an amazing point there. Um, so Daisha, did you like, uh, how, how did you get into leadership? Um, getting into leadership to me, it took years of preparation. It's not an overnight thing. Don't come into your career thinking that in two years, you're going to be in leadership. That may happen for some people, but that is, that's, that's the exception and not the rule. You have to work at this. So first and foremost, most importantly, you have to build a reputation 
of being, you know, forward thinking or doing great work, it starts with the work. First and foremost, do a great job at the job that you have, right? And then for me, it was, you know, making sure that I deepened and broadened my skill set. You know, that was, you know, me getting my MBA. That was me taking different roles, even if they were a step back or a lateral move, if they enabled me to expand my skill set and ultimately get me where I wanted to go. Those things were important in my journey. Also, building and maintaining relationships. This is so I this is so important. I can't stress it enough. You need to make sure that you build and maintain relationships, not just for, you know, transactional purposes because you're not you're not always looking to leverage your relationship to get you somewhere. You may leverage that relationship to get someone else somewhere, right? But those relationships are important. Those are going to be the people that will think of you when opportunities come up, right? So build and maintain relationships. That, that is so, so important. And a lot of times we take that piece for granted. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And building relationships, I would say, is the easy part. But maintaining relationships is something that requires work. And that makes that makes a lot of sense, Taisha. Um, so, can you also tell us about what is your superpower? What is my superpower? Now, this is an interesting one. <laughs> I think I may have two superpowers. One, I think um, my creativity. Um, think different has always been a motto for me, and it has served me well in my career. Um, I also think talent development is another superpower for me. I enjoy seeing my team members develop and flourish in their careers. Um, and the company is only as good as its people. So I think talent development probably is my number one superpower because I really do enjoy helping others reach their goals. I love it. I love it. And I think this is a quality that we all secretly want in our own managers to help you grow and develop in your career. <laughs> um, Taisha, so one more thing that we really and like I personally would like to know is what would your advice be for women who want to get into leadership roles? First and foremost, you need to understand the skills and experience required for the role you want and be intentional with the moves you make in your career, right? So if you know that ultimately where you want to be requires you to have, you know, people management experience, then you need to be intentional about trying to have roles that give you that experience, right? If you know that um, the role that you ultimately want to be in requires, you know, for you to understand Kubernetes, for example, right? Make sure you go and you learn it and any opportunity that you take moves you in that direction. Um, I think also what's important is seeking mentors and sponsors, not just a mentor, but also a sponsor, right? A mentor is going to help you develop um, is going to help you be able to navigate 
but that sponsor is going to be that person that opens the door for opportunity. And I think a lot of times we always think about mentors, but we forget the sponsor conversation. That's very important. Those are going to be those people that open those doors and help you get opportunities that you're trying to um, get, uh, you know, so both are very important. And I think also, you know, just raising your hand for stretch assignments and roles, don't be afraid. Um, you know, as you heard in my career journey, every role that I've taken, I didn't have direct experience in, but I was successful because I believed in myself. And I knew that I was gonna work hard to learn whatever it was that I needed to learn. So don't be afraid to raise your hand for something, even if you don't have all of the experience for it. Yeah, I mean, uh, that personally, like to me, it makes so much sense. There is, there's hard work, there is the risks that you take and you know places you push yourself and then there is uh, then you have mentors and sponsors who like advocate for you when you're not in the room. Uh, that makes a lot of sense, Taisha. Um, can you also tell us, you know, uh, what are you passionate about outside work? What I'm passionate about outside work, um, music. I love music. I'm an avid concert goer. I'm so happy that all of the COVID restrictions are starting to lift now because I can go back to concerts again. I'm so happy. And the other is um, a new passion that I'm developing, which is building furniture. <laughs> Completely different from what I do in my career. Um, but those are two things that I, I really enjoy. That is fantastic. I mean, um, so I'll, I'll share one tidbit about myself. I've never been to a concert like listening to you and how much joy it is bringing you i'm definitely going to ensure i go to a concert this year <laughs> definitely um, do it absolutely i have to do it uh tasha any pro tip for uh women in tech um there's a few i i would say always operate with integrity um you know i think sometimes you know we have this goal in mind and sometimes, you know, there are people that are willing to do anything to get there. Don't be that person, right? <laughs> Always operate with integrity. Um, and that, that, that will serve you well in your career, right? Because this is, it's all about relationships, right? And if you've, and if you've acted in a manner that is unbecoming, people will remember that, right? Always act with integrity. Um, I think also being a woman in tech is not easy. And if you're a black woman in tech, it's, it's that much harder. So you have to be the best. And what does that mean? That means that you have to know your stuff. Be invested in learning. Be committed to lifelong learning because things, this is technology, which means it's always changing, right? You don't want to get left behind and you always want to be someone that um, knows their stuff and is marketable. In order for you to do that, you have to commit to lifelong learning and you have to do the job better than everyone else, unfortunately. <laughs> that's just kind of where you know things are. Hopefully we'll get to a, a place where it, that's different, but 
be a lifelong learner, stay on top of your skills, make sure you know what you need to know to do the job that you want. Um, and then I think, stay curious, ask questions, um, be open to new experiences. Um, and, and I think those things will, will get you far. And lastly, pay attention to your money. <laughs> um, that's another thing that we don't talk about enough making sure that you take advantage of what your company offers you in terms of investments and savings, you know, that is what gives you freedom, right? It gives you freedom to say, you know what, maybe I want to step out on faith and try something different. Maybe I want to start my own business. Um, maybe I want to take a, a make, pivot in my career and do something completely different. But a lot of times what holds us back is that you are not stable enough financially to make those kinds of decisions. So as you are you know, growing in your career and you're growing in your salary, make sure that you're taking, you're taking responsibility for that and you are investing appropriately, pay yourself first because that is going to that's going to open up the door of freedom and opportunity for you so mind your money i mean that is an advice that i haven't heard anyone else give me before and that is that really gives me a very fresh perspective to you know how financial independence can give you freedom to take risks in your career i love it taisha um, and, and towards the end, uh, your journey has been so inspiring and you have given us such amazing tips. I am sure that, you know, people out there who are listening to this podcast want to connect with you. Uh, so can you share with us what is the best way people can be connected with you? Sure. Um, that would be LinkedIn. I'm very active on LinkedIn. I'm on there every day um, and I can be found under Taisha Smith on LinkedIn. That sounds perfect, Aisha. Uh, it was awesome interviewing you today. Thank you so much for your time. And thank you so much for all the tips that you have provided us. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. I, I'm honored. In this week's Women's History Month Global Tech Tour, we're taking a look at software engineers living and working in Europe and Australia. We hope you enjoy it, and if you do, please subscribe, rate, and comment. In the Women Who Code Career Nav segment of our show, you'll hear real-world advice from people who are currently working in the technology industry and personally know the steps needed to succeed. These talks will include both career advice as well as a look at the industry itself and its practices. This week in Women Who Code Career Nav segment, we hear from Wenna Bridgewater, Senior Software Engineering Manager at Kazoo, who's talking about career goals and simple approaches you can use to think about them. So the goal of this is to... <laughs> The goal of this is to get goals that feel like they fit you. Um, and the process looks like this. So based on um, tenants and radical candor, one of the first sort of activities you can do in this process is think about your past. 
And after that, fast forward and think about your future. Then come back to the present and think about your current context, where you are right now. And then create a goal, pulling those together. From that goal, you'll want to scale it. And weirdly enough, scaling it involves breaking it down, assessing, figuring out what the options you have to achieve it, and then one by one, going through those options and achieving them. So speaking of breaking down, if we take this step by step, I'll give a bit more context. I'm going to use an example throughout that that's my example um, from last summer. So some things have changed, but I think as an example, it still stands. So hopefully it's useful. So the first thing is reflecting on your past. And some of the key things I like to think of when key questions that I think of or that I ask folks when you think about your past is throughout your past, what points did you pivot? And why? What does that say about your decision-making process or the things that you value? Um, who shaped who you are personally and professionally? What was your path to get this job? What did you study either in university? Did you take a different path? Did you, did you do something else before you got into this career? Um, and the previous roles that you have, what were they focused on? So for me, just quickly running through um, my, my original focus was journalism and journalism communications and design is what I sort of studied in university. I left university and wanted to travel and wanted to teach. So I taught leadership skills to 12 year olds. Um, I went around the world uh, doing a whole lot of not designing. And then I came back, did some design work had a wonderful time, moved to London, and then decided that I wanted to go into engineering. And since I was in engineering, I've done at, at even one company, transitioned into three roles. So when I think back about the pattern of my life, I've noticed things around wanting new challenges, wanting to, within the same context, have different inputs, have different streams going, um, being interested in, in people and working with people. I've worked with many people gone through this past story and found patterns that were very different, but really helped inform me and them about what they could use from their past or what they've done in their past to help inform the skills they have right now. The next step is to fast forward to your future. And questions that you can ask about the future are, where do you wanna be in five years? And I. I know many people roll their eyes at this question, um, but I think even a, even a vague guess can be useful. Um, other useful things to think about are who has the job that you want? If you looked around and thought about what people do day to day or week to week, who's doing a thing that seems really inter interesting? Um, if you didn't have constraints, financial constraints, how would you spend your time? What job do you wanna retire from? Or, and what would people say at a retirement party? Or what would people say, if that makes you cringe as much as it does me, what would people say in a message about your retirement? Um, so for me, I think my fuzzy five-year plan was to get a senior leadership role in engineering or people. 
the thing I would do if I were financially independent would be traveling, uh, helping organizations I care about, um, teaching what I enjoy um, for free to people who need it. Um, let's see if this progresses. When I retire, I think it'll be from some sort of role in um, engineering people leadership or organizational design. And at a retirement party, uh, the things I would like to hear aspirationally would be around, you know, I helped people become who they are. I stayed through tough times, uh, persevered, and I found joy in the small things. So I thought about the future and kind of that distant where I want to go. And now it's pull it back to the present and define the context that you're in right now. And for defining your context, there is a tool called context zones. And context zones help categorize um, high level sort of competencies uh, and help you gauge where you are. So let me walk you through that tool. There are three context zones. There's the comfort zone, the stretch zone, and the panic zone. The comfort zone is, should be autopilot. It's the things that are familiar to you. There really aren't surprises. They are what give you confidence because you know how to do them without question. The stretch zone is where it's good. It's productive. You're ready for risk. You're ready to learn or many times relearn something. You have an appetite to experiment. You want to stretch your abilities. You want to make change and you want to develop the skills that you have. The panic zone is when you're so far past learning that you, you're not taking anything in. You're really just managing anxiety and you don't have energy left over to be productive. So the way you use the context zones is to identify what you're experiencing right now in those buckets. So if I think about last summer and my comfort zones at that time, for me, what was comfortable was like one-to-one -one conversations with anyone I was happy to have. Speaking up in most meetings, I was happy to do. Um, coaching and giving feedback, facilitating to groups that I was familiar with, asking questions to understand, not afraid to look silly, um, thinking creatively across domains, uh, reasoning through allocations or how to build up teams, the right size and skill sets, and advocating or making proposals or um, arguments for my teams. What I felt like was in my stretch zone was understanding a bit more about how I work best. Um, so really just analyzing my patterns and figuring out what to tap into. Uh, talking to groups of strangers, um, presenting, lots of fear there. Uh, Long-term, longer-term strategic planning. Uh, allocations where it intersects with finance across lots of groups. Um, really just finances, all of it. It's definitely a stretch zone for me. And advocating for time with upper management. In the panic zone, really things that can keep me up or wake me up or make me feel really off kilter are disappointing or alienating my team, um, weighing in with partial knowledge in situations, 
crashing because my mental health plummets, not, I'm not regulating myself well enough, or failing to balance home and work in a home where I have two tiny kids and work where like almost everyone else, especially in tech, there's a million things going on. So now I have these contexts and the key for the contexts is that ultimately you want to have the screen load. There we go. All right. So ultimately for your comfort zone, that is, that is a happy place. You want to keep those things close, um, pull energy from the things that you know how to do well without thinking. Um, but the stretch zone is also great. When you have the energy, figure out where you want to stretch and practice and stretch and use those muscles or take those opportunities. The more you do a particular thing, the more it's going to move into a place of comfort. So reflecting now, I have the point of talking to groups of strangers. And I would say that since I did this presentation in July, um, I've had many, many more situations to talk to strangers. And I would say it's probably more now in my comfort zone than my stretch zone. Finally, the panic zone is not a great place to be. Um, you should try to identify what's making you panic. And then it's kind of two options. You have managers, you have your own personal network, you have colleagues. You want to look for support for the things that you can change, but you're struggling to change. And you want to come to terms with the fact that there are some things that are going to be stressful or make you panic that you can't do much about. So how can you put those on a shelf, acknowledge them, come to terms with them, and help move away from that panic? Comfort zone, keep it, grow it. Stretch zone, lean into it. Panic zone, get out of it. So we've got buckets of our current context, thought about the past, thought about the future. Now we can think about a goal. So the way I imagine a goal is where do you have energy to stretch? Where do you have capacity to experiment or to learn? And how does that space intersect with what you want in the future? And especially in a professional sense at a job, how can you tap into a stretch thinking about your future and be productive within the business or within the organization? So now, we think about our stretch zone, and as I pointed out for me, it was, how do I work best? Maybe it's strangers I need to, like, talking to strangers I need to work on, presenting, planning, allocations, finances, who knows? And then I think about the future that I hypothesized on, so thinking about engineering leadership, um, people leadership, and then my interests of traveling, helping organizations, teaching, um, wanting to go into organizational design or leadership. And so pulling those two together, what do I want to do right now in the context that, I, that I'm in? So the goal that I came up with is, oi, oi, hold on, is become a recognized name in my organization. Right, so I realized that if I wanted to keep going in leadership management, and if I wanted to continue to have impact on people, I wanted people to see me as somebody who can help 
move things forward or help support people, then I wanted to become a more recognized name in my organization. But I had a manager and if I went to my manager, Karthik, and said, hey, Karthik, um, I have this goal and I wanna become a recognized name in the organization. So can you just uh, help me do that? I think the struggle there for Karthik is knowing well, I don't know how, how to call it quits, how to say you have or have not done it. So the next step is taking that sort of broad goal and starting to crystallize a definition and break it down a bit. So that's where the scaling tool comes in. And this tool is a tool that um, you can use for many different reasons. You, there are engineering teams who use it to achieve milestones, you can use it in your personal life for smaller big things. Um, but in this sense, what we'll do is go through the scaling tool where you think of a scale of zero to 10 and you think of your goal. And if you were to say, when I think about whether I'm a recognized name in my organization, where do I think I am on a scale of zero to 10? So first I make an estimate and I, say, oh no, first I define what it looks like. So let's get more particular. So for me, when I think of becoming a recognized name, I wanna be as specific as possible. And for me, what, what came to mind was that the leadership above me knows who I am, knows where I am in a, what was a global company, knows who my teams are and what my particular skill strength was. Um, during talent planning, I would get positive feedback about my work at the org level, um, folks in leadership and engineers or other individual contributors know who I am and aren't shy about asking me questions or giving me feedback. Um, my teams, uh, as an extension of my ability to support and help grow uh, and nurture talent have gotten their own promotions and they are also recognized for their deep domain expertise. So when I think about what I mean when I say that I want to become a recognized name, these are the details that come to mind. And for any goal, you want to take that general statement and try to paint a picture of what are the behaviors or the activities or the bits of evidence you would have that you started to reach 10 on that scale. So once you've defined specifically what this goal looks like for you, you go back to your scale and you say, well, where am I right now? And so first guess, I think I'm at a three out of 10. And the next thing you do is validate that. And the challenge is to say, what are you already doing to become a recognized name? And the challenge is to force yourself to figure out at least seven things. And the reason you go for seven is because it pushes you to recognize things that you might not credit yourself with naturally. It forces you to think broadly about successes you've already had because there are people who will undervalue the accomplishments they've had and doing an exercise like this will help you really think, oh, actually, wait, once I start thinking about it, I've done more than I, I wanna believe on this. So when I started thinking about it, I felt like doing the program with colleagues at my company um, helped with networking. 
I started speaking up more in internal trainings. I started networking off the back of training sessions. I presented this workshop. I uh, adapted the workshop for other managers to use and talked with leadership about facilitating. Um, I took our bonus evaluation process and sort of overhauled it to make it more straightforward and streamlined and less bias and uh, started weighing in more on Slack channels or sending messages out to the broader community, um, even when I didn't have 100% of the uh, information that I thought I needed to be able to answer a question. So I was like, oh, okay, that's probably more than I realized. So you go back to the scale or try to, and you say, am I at a three? Do I think so? And a lot of times you'll reflect and say, I, I think I'm farther along than I thought I was. So I ended up putting myself um, smack in the middle. So from there, the idea is that you figure out where you are and you define options or steps that one by one will get you one step closer to that final goal. And that's this idea of scaling. You go through, you define options, and then you go through cycles of picking them, achieving them, celebrating them, and then going to the next thing. So you force yourself to think broad, think wide, and come up with a lot of options that um, tap into where you want to stretch, but also remembering that the things in your comfort zone will help make achieving this goal easier. So choose things that make you stretch, but also um, things that have uh, help keep you calm as well. So for me, um, I wanted to practice public speaking four times, both inside and outside of the company, which again, once I built up a community, I felt much more comfortable about presenting. So I started it inside and then went outside. Um, reach out to leaders in the company for one-to-ones, um, interviews, uh, interview for roles, both inside and outside of the company, really just to get more of a gauge of how the industry was. Um, work with leadership on scope, priority, and allocations for my team, so developing proposals. Advocate and recruit for DEI org level groups to address needs for us. And uh, do coaching for my reports on visibility and amplifying ideas and efforts. So then I had to pick them one by one and get them done. So the first thing I chose in this example was practice public speaking four times, uh, a mix of inside and outside the company. And this presentation was in June. And I think that I had done three presentations prior to that. So I ended up doing my fourth presentation and finished off that option and celebrated. Felt really great to go from five years of not doing any public presentations to uh, two months of doing four, which was great. And then it was on to the next option, choosing it, focusing on it, finishing it, and then starting again. Once you've reached that goal, of course, it's a self-feeding cycle. You can start again. The, the first 
two steps, thinking about your past, imagining your future, probably not going to have dramatic change um, over short amounts of time. Your context will change, though. Thinking about your context zones is something that I'll do with report with my reports, engineers or managers try to do every six weeks, six to eight weeks, just to see if anything new has surfaced that's good to keep in mind. So it's really repeating. So complete the options. Don't forget to celebrate, which I often do. Um, and then think about what the next goal is. Help and support is crucial. I think, in developing and achieving goals. Um, sharing, saying a goal can feel scary. Um, saying when you're panicked about something can feel terrifying. Um, it's hard to find people you trust uh, in different parts of your life, but I'm sure you have a network there. So open up to them about the things that you want to achieve. Socialize your goals and look for different possibilities. Maybe it's your man manager, but it could be mentors um, in the industry or friends, sponsors, family. But if people know and you trust them, they can help you help nudge you along and they can help you celebrate. So just to go through the process again, and then I'll talk a little bit about why I like this framework in particular. So reflect on your past, imagine your future, figure out for where you are right now, what makes you comfortable, what make, feels like a good stretch and what's making you panicked. Create your goal by thinking about where you are now and where you wanna go. Scale that goal, break it down, and then attack it one option at a time. So why I personally like this approach, I like it because I'm good at coming up with ideas, but I'm not very good at breaking them down. Um, I, I believe that personal goals are not business goals. There's a really strong intersection and I, progression has to be an intersection. But when I think about business goals um, and OKRs and, um, key results. I think there's one place for that, but this approach feels like um, productive without being overly business focused. Um, you don't have to fo focus on metrics to get a sense of progress. You have these small steps. Um, and I think the definition of 10, what 10 looks like, gives you guardrails in both directions. So it can keep you going if you think, ah, oh, man, I did a really good thing then, keeps you going to say, I did, but have I gotten to where I wanna be? Or do I need to do another really good thing before I move on to another goal? Um, alternatively, it can also stop you from going too far. There are times when I have set out a goal and keep convincing myself that I need to change the goalpost, change how much I need to do before I will call it done. And so, Setting what 10 is at the start helps you actually have a sense of when you've finished. And you get lots of mini goals for free, which is great. Um, I also think it's important to evaluate and feel, uh, 
feel out whether you need to change your options based on circumstance. And I think getting, having one by one options means that when you finish that small step, you go back, look overall and say, actually, my context has changed a bit. And so I want to focus on this option that I hadn't realized. So I'm going to focus on that for now. So as I mentioned, the inspiration, the pieces that I pulled together um, were Radical Candor by Kim Scott, Coaching for a Performance by Sir John Whitmore, um, Gordon Baker, who was the um, coach for the workshop, and the Oxford Women's Leadership Program. So yeah, go forth. Um, think about you and your career. Um, don't be afraid to share your goals. Uh, approach this as with everything as ongoing and iterative and find the right fit for you. Women Who Code Talks Tech is a segment that features experts in a specific field of technology sharing their knowledge on an in-depth and highly technical subject. These talks are designed to both introduce advanced subjects and provide insight into the work being done in these fields. In this week's Women Who Code Talks Tech segment, we'll hear about machine learning for gesture recognition in a talk given by Ying Lu, a research associate of machine learning at University of Leicester and TGO. She is also a machine learning lead for Women Who Code London. Enjoy. So my name is Ying and I'm currently a research associate in machine learning and I'm working in a joint program between the University of Leicester and a tech company called TG0. So the purpose of this program is to design a machine learning architecture for TG0's devices to help them to achieve an accurate gesture recognition. So I'll give everyone an idea about how machine learning is used in gesture recognition um, from industry's point of view, um, I won't go to go into too much details uh, about the technical part. Um, of course, you're welcome to ask me any questions uh, which are technical if you are interested in it. So my company, TG0, designs products with a capacitive sensor for various purposes. Um, the thing is, if you apply capacitive sensor on hardware of different shapes, the combination can actually extend to a very large variety of applications. I'm going to um, well, I'm going to first show you some examples of these combinations with capacitive sensor. Then I'm going to point out what kind of uh, application would be considered as a gesture. And then I'm going to show you why do we need machine learning for this? And what does the other companies do apart from my company, TG0? What do they do with machine learning to their products? Um, in the third part of this talk, I'm going to show you how I started the whole process in a company which has zero experience with machine learning. At the end of this, I want to share some useful links, um, which can be quite handy if you want to dip your toes into this field. So, of course, the first of all, 
um, I'm going to say what is a gesture recognition and more specifically, what is a gesture? So gesture can be anything. So here I'm going to demonstrate a device which give you some ideas of single gestures. Like in over here, if you slide left, it's a gesture going to left and slide right, going to gesture going to right. And also if you press a button, that is a gesture as well. So something, if we make it more specific, and it can be something like a person with a slight touch, it gives a uh, light strength. And if I press a little bit harder, it gives a very strong strength. And that can be two different gestures. And if we move to a dial, turning left and turning right, clockwise, anti-clockwise, and how much I turn, it can be considered as a gesture as well. Not only it can be shown on the UI saying that, okay, that's actually um, the, how the dial is turned. It can be also translated into a kind of computer language thing that that's what I want the computer to do. Like anti-clockwise could mean something and um, clockwise can mean something else. So the next video I'm going to show you is pretty cool. It's the, it's the device I'm currently working on and it is currently used in virtual reality. Um, I'm going to show you the gaming part of it. Yeah. So the device you just saw from the last video is called um, ET. It is a handheld controller. Um, apart from being used as a normal game controller, it is also functioning as a hand tracking devices. As you can see here, um, it recognizes your finger movements and also like it can recognize some single gesture like point and squeeze or um, or other things like um, I think it does soft touch and squeeze and pointing and a little bit shooting um, gestures. So it already does something like that. So why do I need to use machine learning for this? Um, the thing is, to be able to detect a gesture from these raw signals I get from this device, um, I need to monitor the signal behavior. And um, for a lot of our products, what we are doing is like, I perform a certain gesture and then it recognize, uh, I, I start to look at the signal and monitor how it behaves when I was performing this gesture. And with my brand, I start to conclude that, okay, this is kind of pattern um, my device is doing. Then I'm going to transfer that into a code saying that, okay, if this part of signal performs in these type of pattern, then that means it gives me a gesture of pointing or give me a gesture of squeezing. However, as the devices get more and more complicated, and as the um, um, as the um, the gesture I wanted to get more and more complicated, maybe I want something else. Maybe I want to say zoom in, zoom out. So what do I do with it? Like it is beyond the human brain's capability to detect or see these patterns from my raw signals. It's going to just going to be numeric signals and like with numbers. It, it is beyond the human brain's capability. 
to do that. Now, in this case, machine learning can be very handy. So that's why we need machine learning for these type of gesture recognition. Um, of course, there are probably hundreds or thousands of companies which want to use machine learning for their sophisticated devices. Um, I know of the hot topic is um, actually self-driving cars. If you think about it, a movement of a car in front of you could be um, indicated as a gesture as well. If the left light is flashing, that means they're going to turn left. And if the right light flashing, that means they want to turn left. If you flash the warning light twice, I think that means, oh, thank you. Um, I hope I'm all right, I write about this. And if you see a car wiggling on a motorway and they can't keep within the lane, there's probably means the driver is drunk or drug or having a fight with the people who's sitting next to them. So yeah, like if all these things means can be classified as a gesture. Um, but unfortunately, I'm not going to, um, I'm, I'm not working in um, self-driving cars, so I'm not going to um, dig deep into this. I want to show you one of the products Microsoft is working on. And I find it really cool and challenging. And um, I, I don't work for them, though, but so, oh, sorry. Uh, yeah, so, um, um, so, all the videos and pictures I got are actually from their website. So I don't know if there's going to be copyright problems if we're recording this um, presentation, but I, I hope it's not. It's, it's all from their website. So the product is called HoloLens. So what does it do? It is type of goggle. It has a glass in front of your eyes and on the top of it, that's a processor and battery and everything, and has um, several cameras on top of it. These are the cameras which record the environment. So what it does do, there is multiple applications of it. You can use it for um, education purpose or in industry. So um, through these, um, glasses, which is um, see-through holographic lenses, you can see the environment around you. So it doesn't, uh, it's not like um, a solid goggle, which you see the outside world through the cameras. You actually see them with your eyes because they are glasses. But at the same time, they are holographic lenses, which means they create holographic image in front of your eye. And it creates these virtual objects. On the right picture, you can see that, okay, it creates something. Uh, I, I don't know what that is like, but some maybe a biological um, um, tissue object thing. And the thing is, and it looks like a 3D model in front of you. And the purpose is to mix this virtual object with the reality to create a mixed reality. And the thing is, the also, the application it would be, if you look at something in front of you, it's right there. If you look from the side, the object doesn't move with your movement. If you look at it from the side, it would actually see, um, make it look like the object is actually there. You're just looking at it from the side. Um, what else? 
articulated, like there are several parts of the struggle, actually, I, I, I think they involve uh, machine learning. So the first of it, like, of course, the, the part I'm interested in the most is the hand tracking, um, hand tracking features. So uh, in their recent, in a recent machine learning conference, um, the HoloLens team, machine learning team actually um, published and showcased their techniques of generating training data for this hand tracking. I'm going to go into details later. So um, what they do is when you have a hand in front of the goggle, the cameras record um, your finger movements um, or record actually the videos of your hands. And so they use machine learning to process all these images and recognize how your finger moves. So that's one of the functions they have. I don't know if they do um, body tracking with these cameras. Um, because I know that um, Google and Apple, they are actually doing the um, body tracking um, system. So they have a ready model, so you can download online. Um, so technically, Microsoft has ability to do that because they have cameras, basically. If they, they implanted um, these um, type of machine learning model into their processor, they can actually do it. So they, have, they probably have these type of uh, um, functions to do hand tracking and body tracking. So they also have other functions. The next thing I'm going to show you is uh, called um, kind of a eye tracking um, system. Well, it's, a, it's a video download from their website, so I hope this is not a copyright problem. So um, what they do is that they have cameras to track where your eyesight is focusing. In this case, they know what you are looking at. So um, it would be something like um, they, if they know where you are looking at, so they know what, where the object should be, like which side you are looking at regarding to the object. Um, in this case, actually, um, the similar technique was um, applied in another product called um, Oculus as well. And this is a product um, from Facebook. It is a type of goggle as well. It has cameras in front of the goggle. It's not transparent. It doesn't have lens, transparent lens. It is just pure solid and goggle. Uh, like the normal gaming goggle you can see in the market. They also have this eye tracking system. What they do is they track where you look at. And, and it knows, if it knows what you're looking at, then it starts to do this rendering of the image you are looking at. Something like what you see from um, these two pictures. So the red square represents where your eye sits. If your eye are focusing on the screen in front of you, then it will sharpen the image of the screen. And if your eye focus on the background, then it will sharpen the background and make the screen a little bit blurry. So it makes it look a little bit like, like um, real, like in a 3D environment instead of um, kind of 2D 
environment, but they, they, they make it look like a, a little bit 3D. So they want to make it more realistic. This is a deep focus rendering system uh, Oculus is doing um, with machine learning. So um, because if what they are trying to do is like, if you make it look more realistic, it um, will help the user to conquer the, the thinking that, okay, I'm not, I'm just in a virtual environment. It make it realistic, make the user feel more comfortable. Um, because when I use these uh, goggles, I always find it a little bit nauseous because it, like, because it didn't treat my brain thinking, okay, that's the real environment because it confused my brain that caused this kind of confusion and caused the nauseous part. Um, so what uh, all these um, companies are trying to do is uh, make it more realistic, making it more comfortable for users to, to do and to, to actually use them. Then the next function I want to mention in HoloLens is, um, a uh, kind of 3D mapping. So it has a spatial uh, mapping uh, to map out the distance of each object and then recall the shape of this object. Think about it. If the professor, uh, sorry, processor knows what the environment looks like, and then it'll be much easier to create a virtual object on top of it. Because think about it, in front of you, that's a table. And I want to I want to create a virtual object on top of the table that I know exactly where I'm going to put it on. And if my move my position from the front of the table to this left of the table, it knows what it will be rotating. So the hololens. Uh, so um, yeah, the the yeah, the goggle knows where to put the virtual object and how close you are to the object and which direction you are looking at. And I think, I, I don't know if they actually put machine learning, but I believe there is uh, something which machine learning could help in this case, because there is another company who does similar things. So this is a company called Magic Leap. Um, this is also a Google company and um, uh, that's like where my um, research is focusing on recently. So I'm going to show these as example. So what it does is it has a very similar technique. It uses spatial computing to calculate how close each item is. And by doing that, it knows uh, which are uh, the shape of the object and how close they are to you. And, um, but instead of, uh, maybe they put a virtual object in this environment as well, but also they put um, kind of artificial light into the object as well. Because if you think about it, how do you decide how close an object to you? Of course, a human has like two eyes, so we have the ability to calculate the distance in our subconscious. Uh, we can roughly estimate how far um, is like like my laptop is close to me because with my two eyes I can calculate in my subconscious I think um but it's not just because we have two eyes it's also because how how 
the shadow works, how light is interacting with an object. To make it more realistic, think about it. if you are living in a um, whole um, environment of uh, black and white without uh, lighting, it might be a little bit hard for person, a person to calculate how far it is an object is to you. So these calculations are based on light shadows and also maybe the resolution of these images. So if you know, so um, if you know, like um, I have a virtual object in the middle, it has no shadows, then how real it is to me. Um, what Magic Leap does is it puts a virtual light to this object to make it more real. And in this, this case, it makes the virtual invite more realistic as well. So in this case, it's, it's actually very similar to what um, um, HoloLens does. Also, Oculus can do that as well. Oculus was the Google I mentioned earlier, which was a company from uh, Facebook as well, because they all have these cameras to record the environments and then they can actually calculate or create a 3D mapping of the environment as well. They all have this potential. So my next question would be, we've seen all these cool applications we can achieve with machine learning, but how do we actually start with this process? So, to make it easy, there are only three parts in, you need in your machine learning architecture. If you, if you are new to this machine learning um, field or, or you want to just apply these into your project, that's the part you need. We have an input uh, machine learning model and an output. But there's so much we can talk about it. Um, I'm going to give a blank page to this input and output because um, it has, like, for me, it's the most difficult part because for different devices, for different applications, and for various um, companies or organizations, the input can be hard, can be really, really hard, and also can be simple. If you think about what HoloLens has, the Google from um, Microsoft, um, I mentioned they have a machine learning team who talked about it in a CVPR conference um, earlier this year. Also, they mentioned it last year as well, actually. Um, so what they do is like, to be able to detect this hand tracking, you need images from your Google, from your camera, so that is, what pictures, pictures are pictures. It's a video, probably like, I don't know, 24 pictures in one second. So you need these pictures to know, okay, that's my input information, but what is the output? I have a picture, how do I know what my finger, with the position of my finger? If I can draw it directly from this picture, I don't need the machine learning model. And how do I do it? What they did was to generate a virtual model of hand. So 
they have this um um kind of like um it's quite creating again having two hands or with arms in front of you with all these hand skeleton and then give it a little bit of muscle, give it a little bit of skin, and give it a little bit of background. I create these kind of uh, hands in my game, and you look at it from the point of view from your eyes. So the computer knows where the hands are because I created them. Then the next problem is going to be okay, I'm going to take a picture or not picture, I'll record the model. And then in this case, I have my input. I have an image or kind of where the virtual camera is to record the position of my finger or my hands. And I know the output because I create the model. So I know what my hand skeleton is. So they were doing, they were creating the input and output from their machine learning team. Um, with different styles, your hands can move. Then, in this case, they can generate thousands of, um, maybe, well, like thousands of uh, hundreds or like of data. Um, of course, the problem they are running into is not just that. Uh, apparently, if you put a little bit jewelry or a ring, a bracelet, um, a little bit painting on your hand it will cause confusion. Also, changing a background will cause confusion as well. So it is a little bit hard for um, machine learning models to learn it, to generate an accurate output. So they need to create more models with jewelry bracelets and even the sleeves. So they have an arm as well. And on this arm, maybe changing the watch, changing how long your sleeves are, is going to affect the result as well. Of course, that's the problems they are running or they have uh, during their research and they told us about it. Uh, something like my problem is actually, I have loads of messy data or none data, like I don't have any data, I could say that. So, because as I told you, my company have had zero experience in machine learning before I actually joined them. So what they do is like, they have the device, they don't have input data. Then how do you create these thousands of, like just or how thousands of um, gesture data for the gesture recognition? And not just that, how do I actually have an output of from this gesture input? Like if I perform gesture, how does computer know I'm performing this gesture? All these need to be created beforehand, before I actually go into the part of model. Um, I also had a very interesting talk with um, a professor in NGS today about how they actually having with their input data. The problem of their data is there are way too much data, way too many data. What they told me is that they have a data collected for um, probably the past 10 years every day. And they have like hundreds of, hundred, actually data from hundreds of systems in the NHS system in, in just one hospital. 
and they record that every day. They put them in a database for, I don't know, 10 years. That's lots of data sitting there. And even the, prof the, even the professor who has been in the field for, I don't know, like 20, 30 years, he couldn't figure out what each data set means. So they have a large amount of input data, but very messy. So there are so many problems coming with this input and output. And I'm not going to go too far about it because there are like hours, like I can talk hours about how difficult and how much pre-processing I have with this. And also like um, not mentioning uh, natural language processing and other things or handwriting oh, as a nightmare as well. I'm going to move on to the next machine learning model. I think that'll be a little bit fun part. So um, there are so many machine learning algorithms out there. How should I choose? If you are new to the field and want to apply machine learning in your project, this could be a nice figure to look at. There are so many versions online there. Just search with the keyword of a machine learning cheat sheet. As long as you know um, what kind of problem you have. And then you can easily find the type of model which suits you. Um, I remember there was a saying that um, 99 of the problem in the market can actually be solved with a simple machine learning model. Would you find that in the chart? Something like if you have um, less than 50 samples, then you need to get more data, apparently, because machine learning requires large amount of data. Then if you have more samples and then decide whether you want a category, and if you have a category, um, and you basically want a classification, oh, sorry, the next step is uh, whether they are labeled. And if you don't want category, and um, are you looking for uh, regression problems or a dimensional reduction problem? Do you want to extract the features of your product? Do you want to um, give it a score, like um, have like a numeric value saying that, okay, ranging from zero to hundred, or whether I have no idea, I just want to classify my um, data into several clusters. There are so many models you can go into. And because the field is so developed now, you can easily find these models in some, um, some uh, library, uh, something like SKLearn. So if you know a little bit better about machine learning and you can dive into the world of neural networks. But if you think about how human brain works, our brain works in a huge network so with millions of neurons. So our neural networks will be kind of something which mimics that. And the funny thing is um, a simple neural network will be like just three layers with several um, neurons, not even like over 10 or something. But you have a, if you have like, like over two layers or three layers, like a little bit like in this case, like six uh, six layers, it will be called a deep neural networks for, for the computer that's deep enough. And then um, ideally, like 
theoretically, actually, if you have enough neurons, which may make half the millions of neurons in your brain, theoretically, we are saying that, okay, you can actually do what a human brain can do. But that is also limited by our computing um, capability of all these um, computers or, or cloud computers as well. Um, but um, if you think about it, it's, it's actually not um, to simplify it. We just have an input on the left side represented by my purple dots. And then we have a certain type of orange dot, which are my output. So I just create all these types of um, neurons in the middle. Um, a, like creating a model is basically arranging how the neuron um, layered in a, in a simple way. Like, of course, there are other things which can be um, um, connected in different ways, but like, in a simple way, we can just oh, just add the neurons in a different layer and um, with a little bit different arrangement. One neuron can maybe can talk to another and all sorts of things. But eventually, what we are trying to do is going from an input to the output with a model in the middle. Um, so yes, then that would. That's what we have, um, an input, a model, and an output. If you, want, if you want to start with um, machine learning, that's basically all you need, um, uh, input and output and a model to start with. Of course, if you, or if you want to apply machine learning into your project and you already have a lot of input data, a lot of training data, you have in hand, then you know what they are. You have them labeled. You have the corresponding output for each input. That'll be quite straightforward to have your own machine learning architecture. There are some shortcuts I would recommend to you because you don't even need to design your own machine learning model. There are so many resources online. Um, so um, I'm just making, showing you some examples from um, TensorFlow and the Google website and Apple website. And, and there's so many more. You can just search online saying that like Google, mo um, Google model and machine learning model and Apple machine learning model or just machine learning model with uh, the cool company you think of. And then you, they have a lot of models to do translation for the natural language processing. And they also have this hand gesture recognition. Um, sorry, not gesture recognition, hand recognition, hand, um, hand position, finger position recognition, um, body recognition. They also have um, something like um, um, voice recognition as well. A lot of resources. You don't even need to develop your own as long as you know what your problem is find the corresponding model online and then put your input data into it and try it out. So yeah, like that's all I I can like show you guys today with how to dive into the machine learning field. And thank you very much.
for listening to the Women Who Code podcast. To find out more about our mission and the work we do across the tech industry, visit our website, womenwhocode.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Women Who Code. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel with hundreds of hours of free educational videos. Just go to youtube.com backslash women who code. Thanks again for listening and remember to subscribe, rate, and comment.